Part two, chapter seven of the luggage of life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The luggage of life by Frank W. Borum. Part two, chapter seven. The organist. The organist is an ecclesiastical vagabond. He is a nomad and a nondescript. He lives in a kind of no-man's land. In the rationale of our spiritual economy, he has never been provided with a home. We have never taken the trouble to place him. We have ministers, and we know why we have them. Deacons and teachers and choirs we have, and their contribution to our worship is well defined and clearly understood. But we allow the organist, as organist, to hover spectrally on the frontiers of our religious domain. We have never made up our minds as to whether he is simply a cogwheel in the cold mechanism of our church organization, or one of the controlling forces of the inner life of the sanctuary. Is he, in a word, one of those reviving, quickening, spiritual factors that are an essential part of our worship and testimony, or is he merely a necessary appendage, a convenient adjunct, an entertaining auxiliary? Is he a member of the family, or merely a distant relative, or, perchance, a nodding acquaintance? We offer him a chair, or at any rate a stool, on Sundays and at choir practices. Then he folds his tent like the Arab, and silently steals away. We scarcely know where to place him. Is he inside or outside? Is he a partner or a passenger? In fairness to him, and in justice to ourselves, we ought to face the problem. We must classify and locate him. Too long, the church has said to the organist, the minister we know, and the choir we know, but who are you? Now, there are very few subjects that have betrayed their exponents into more obvious confusion of thought than the attempt to define the exact relationship existing between minstrelsy and ministry. The case for the organist has never yet been satisfactorily stated, either from the purely musical or from the purely ecclesiastical viewpoint. Here, for example, Charles Santley, in his Reminiscences, tells us that his master, Navarre, at the Conservatoire at Milan, used to insist that the object of music was to give greater expression and emphasis to the words, which, of course, is unadulterated nonsense. It is true enough of certain forms of vocal music, but the sweeping and merciless dictum ruthlessly excommunicates the blackbird and the thrush, the nightingale and the canary, and at the same time cuts the throat of our unhappy organist. If we subscribe to the daring proposition, we condemn the dead march and the wedding march as inanities, and all our organist's wordless voluntaries become impertinences of the worst kind. It is clear, therefore, that, whilst our Milanese master is indisputably right in insisting on the clear enunciation of every syllable, when there are syllables to enunciate, he has not spoken the whole truth. He has failed to supply us with a practical theory that will include both the goldfinch and the organist, the two great wordless minstrels in the temples of nature and grace. Now, if our theologians had read their Bibles as carefully as our organists have read their music, they would most certainly have discovered that the scriptures have some very fine things to say about the organist. 
Here, for instance, is quite a cluster of great Old Testament stories, which should have helped us to solve our problem long ago. Look at this one. Jehoram, the wicked king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, the good king of Judea, have for a while joined forces that they might fight side by side against the Moabites. But in the course of the campaign their united armies fall into sore straits, and Jehoshaphat longs to hear some guiding voice. In his perplexity he hungers for fellowship with the skies. His soul ached to speak with God. Is there not a prophet? he inquired. Elisha is found, and three kings stand before him and beg him to prophesy. But the lips of the seer are sealed. He has no message. He is dumb. Then he cried, Bring me a minstrel! And it came to pass, when the minstrel played, that the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, and he prophesied. Now, here is a clear-cut case in which the organist was simply indispensable to the minister. The prophet could not prophesy without the minstrel. The player was the preacher's inspiration, a minister to the minister. The music of the minstrel directly contributed to a magnificent spiritual result. When the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, and he prophesied. Two other instances of a similar kind will leap to the memory of every reader. One, when Saul heard the music of the psaltery, and the tabret, and the pipe, and the harp, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he prophesied, and was turned into another man. Two, when David took his harp and played before Saul, the evil spirit departed from him. The point is that, in each case, we recognize the organist. It is instrumental music, pure and simple. There is no question of words, whether clearly or indistinctly enunciated. And in each case, the language admits of no second interpretation. An emphatically spiritual effect was produced. We must be honest, even though we be theologians. We must be fair, even towards an organist. None of the facts must be blinked. Now, we venture to think that a working hypothesis can be built upon these facts. Now, we venture to think that a working hypothesis can be built upon these facts. Two irresistible conclusions emerge. The first is that the organist is clearly part and parcel of our spiritual economy. Indeed, these three graceful old stories, if they mean anything, seem to show that we need our friend the organist in every department of our religious enterprise. For in the first two cases it was through his agency that the divine spirit was received, and in the third case it was by means of his melodious ministry that the evil spirit was expelled. These are the two great essential functions of the Church in every age, to invoke a fresh inrush of spiritual enlightenment and reviving fervor, and to exercise and expel all that is unrighteous, unholy, and unclean. And if, as these stories plainly show, the organist can help the Church to fulfill these two magnificent missions, and to realize this sublime spiritual ideal, then let all pastors and deacons and teachers and singers stand up and say, God bless the organist. But lest our friend of the music stool should become exalted above measure by the brilliance, as of the seventh heaven, of this Old Testament revelation, we hasten to emphasize the second principle that clearly emerges from its beatific splendors. It is manifest that the music of the minstrel is not an end in itself. 
just as the work of the minister is not in itself spiritually effective, but is the channel through which the excellency of the divine power may communicate itself, so the harmonies of the organ are but a means of grace. The language is wonderfully exact and explicit. When the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, and it was the hand of the Lord that wrought the resultant miracle. We hazard the suggestion that, if our pastors and officers and members would spend half an hour in the careful contemplation of these exquisite old records, their eyes would be so illumined that they would detect an aureole encircling the brows of the organist. And if our minstrels would pore over these fragrant pages for a while, they would feel the thrill of a new ecstasy in their avocation, and glorify their talents with a fresh consecration. An added sweetness and dignity would lurk in those lovely notes that come trilling and shuddering down from the organ, and the gracious ministries of our minstrelsy would anticipate that home of the eternal harmonies in the heart and centre of whose melodies the Lord himself delightedly abides. End of Part 2, Chapter 7 Recording by Hannah Mary